This is episode 149 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2015, Standing in the Gap. This is session two from Saturday morning. Well, good morning. That was awesome. You guys had coffee this morning or something. We're looking at the same passage. I hope that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at one more phrase. Uh, I do want to read the uh, whole passage, verses 9 and 10 again. Um, I I don't know if you grew up in the church, um, if you were sort of trained uh, for evangelism, uh, if you remember sort of like how evangelism was taught. I grew up in the church, went through uh, multiple variations of evangelism classes, evangelism programs, uh, Tuesday night visitation where we would go, uh, you know, uh, visit homes and, and uh, meet with people, uh, sat through classes where they would sort of teach us the techniques of evangelism. Um, I don't know if you went through those. Maybe you resonated with a lot of those things. I did not as a kid. It, it, it felt um, sort of a lot like um, learning to sell insurance or, or something like that, um, or, or even Amway, you know, like even, even worse than that. It always felt in some sense like a, like a sales pitch. There was so much time spent, as I look back, I try to you know, diagnose like what the um, primary problem was. And this wasn't the primary problem, but it's one of the problems. And, and it was um, essentially that we were being taught more to close the deal than we were about the gospel itself. And so it became sort of how to sort of pin someone into a rhetorical corner and you know, get them to admit certain things and, and, and then come in with this sort of sales pitch. And I remember um, guilt, just a sort of shadow of guilt over the, the whole thing. And so uh, Sunday morning I would go to Sunday school and one of the first questions that the Sunday school teacher would ask, this was probably when I was in junior high, uh, one of the first questions they would ask is, who did you witness to this week? Like, who did you share the gospel with? It's a, I mean, it's a good question. But the way we were trained for evangelism and then the way we were sort of held accountable for evangelism, it had this, this, this sort of legalistic kind of um, guilt factor hanging over it for us. And I remember sort of walking home with my friend Steve one day after school, and Steve was not a believer, and I, I wanted Steve to be a believer. I genuinely you know, cared about him and cared about his soul uh, you know, to the extent that um, a ninth-grade boy is sort of aware, you know, able to think of those things. And, um, but I was just so nervous. I couldn't figure out. Like, how, it just didn't seem natural to, you know, to bring up this sort of gospel conversation with him. Everything that I was taught, um, there was no opening. Steve and I could talk you know, a long time about you know, action movies and superheroes and cars and all kinds of things. But we couldn't ever kind of find the open door. And I remember sort of walking home with him one day, and it was Friday. And I knew I was going to be facing this question on Sunday morning in Sunday school. And I had this gospel track in my pocket. And my hand was in there. And it was, by the time I, I finally pulled it out with a shaking hand, it was just wet from my sweat and kind of crumbled up. And, and I said, Steve, would you read this? I have to tell them that you read this. <laughs> and, you know, Steve took it, and he's like, yeah, I guess so, you know. <laughs> and we parted ways, and... That was sort of the, the, the peak of my evangelistic prowess. <laughs> now, as I sort of entered into ministry, became a pastor, started um, trying to help people share Jesus Christ um, in ways that are biblically faithful, I started doing some troubleshooting. Why was it so difficult for me to share the gospel? I believed that I was a Christian, and I believed that I believed that it was the most important thing in my life, but it was so difficult to do that. Why was it so hard to share the gospel with my friends? 
Well, part of it certainly is the way that I was trained to do it, but another part was this. I was not properly captivated, captured in awe of Jesus Christ. There's something about a profound experience of the gospel that will um, make you so that you can't help but share what has happened to you. So that's what I want to use just to sort of segue into the clause we're going to look at. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the um, whole passage, these two verses uh, to begin with. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. I want to pray again, uh, open up our time this morning by asking the Father to bless us, help us see the glory of His Son this morning. Heavenly Father, what we need most of all is not more information, not even more theology. What we need is your Son, the glory of your Son imparted to our hearts, filling our souls with blazing light, satisfying our hunger, and helping us to yearn more and more for Him. And so above everything, above um, seeing the text in new intellectual ways, above biblical knowledge, Above all of that, help us to see your Son, certainly through the biblical knowledge. Father, we, we know that even uh, the demons know about you. Even the demons know that Jesus is Lord, but they do not worship him as Lord. And so we ask that you would give us a spirit of worship this morning, even as we look at um, your word. And it's in your Son's great name that we pray. Amen. So this is the phrase that I want to sort of drill down into. Last night we kind of gnawed like a dog on a bone on this chosen race. This morning we're going to gnaw on a royal priesthood. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? And I think the key, if I could sort of unlock um, what the primary dysfunction for me was in sharing evangelism when I was a kid, it was this. I didn't know my place in relationship to Christ's lordship. I thought that I did, but I really did not. I didn't see my place. Because the emphasis was so much on closing the deal, I believed that my evangelism was sort of motivated by um, uh, thinking that the results were contingent on me. That I was, in fact, responsible for success. And do you know the Bible has not called us to be successful? It calls us to be faithful. We are simply to scatter the seed the Lord will be responsible for if it takes root or doesn't or if it grows or doesn't. You remember the parable of the sower. He was not going around taking soil samples. He wasn't sort of looking to see where the seed would take root and then sort of genetically modifying the seed for maximum results. He was just scattering the seed far and wide. Well, this is what a priest does. This is what we are to be as priests, with Christ as our high priest. We are making offerings on behalf of the people. That's what a priest is. A priest is a a mediator between God and man. And so he's not responsible for conjuring anything up. He's not responsible for that spiritual relationship succeeding. He is simply responsible for standing in the gap, for being the one to take the word of the Lord and transmit it to the people, to do the work of sort of mediating sacrifice. And so our job as a royal priesthood is to announce that the sacrifice has been made. 
It's not up to us. The work has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. So now I see sort of four things that are a part of being a royal priesthood. Four things that to be a royal priest entails. Briefly, they are these. Compassion, conviction, courage, and compulsion. Like a good Baptist preacher, I have four C's for you. Compassion, conviction. If I was really good, they would like make a word when you put all the things together. But Compassion, conviction, courage, and compulsion. Let's begin with the first one. A royal priesthood is compassionate. A royal priesthood is compassionate. Now, I don't know how you look at sort of the state of evangelicalism in America right now. I do not see the church as a very compassionate people. At least by and large. We seem to look at the world around us, we see the the sort of cultural decay, the cultural downgrade, and our first inclination is anger. Anger, annoyance, irritation that people will not act right. And so instead of sort of positioning ourselves, positioning ourselves as compassionate priests, we actually position ourselves usually as combatants. How do we fight these people? How do we defeat them? How do we demoralize them? How do we outnumber them? How do we beat them? And of course, as the election cycle ramps up again, we have the resurrection of the culture war all over again, which is never quite dead, but seems to get more visceral, more passionate when there is high stakes, and especially when there's a new president to be elected. Now, I'm not a young man, but I'm not an old man. I have never seen this work. I have never seen it work. Every four years we get on about the same stuff. We, we sound the same alarms. We make the same sort of position statements. We, we uh, like Chicken Little, the sky is falling. The, the world is going to hell. If we can just get the right man in, in office, and even when we do, at least according to our measurement, get the right man in office, it doesn't work, does it? You think Jesus Christ needs the right president in America to change America? Combatants. We look at the the fallen world, the broken world, and, and we want to fight them. And if we're not fighting them, we're using them. So we're not compassionate. We're combatants or we're consumers. We use the world that's around us. We look at the communities that we live in, and we think of them solely in terms of our own comfort and our own convenience. We tend to seek our own prosperity, our, our own prospering. The world exists to be used, to be consumed, to be profited from, but neither consumers nor combatants are loving their neighbors, which is what God has called us to do. Because you can't use somebody and love them at the same time. Now when Christ saw the crowd, the lost, broken, sinful, pagan crowd, it said he had what for them? compassion he saw that they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd he was not annoyed and this compassion that he felt for them was not like this sort of pity like he felt sorry for them that word compassion is is a a visceral word it was sort of like he was broken in the guts over them he didn't see their plight as uh, immediately inconveniencing him or irritating him. He saw their plight as those who are lost and going to hell. And that broke him. It, it, it hurt his heart. 
We cannot carry out the work of the royal priesthood if we do not love lost people. If we don't see the world around us as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If we do not see them as where exactly we would be if it were not for the grace of God. Because that's what consuming and, and, and combating really boil down to. Arrogance. Pride. As if somehow we merited Christ's salvation and were not found out by the gospel. So what do you see? Ask yourself, what do you see when you look at your neighborhood and you look at your city? Is your first response anger? Do you remember Nehemiah as he approached the gates, this, uh, the walls of Jerusalem and, and just found them in ruins? And they had been like that for like 100 years. He sat down outside the gates and he wept. He wept because the city was broken. He didn't shake his fist. He didn't write a sternly worded letter to the editor. He wept. Now, this is especially difficult. I know this. It's especially difficult to have compassion towards those who don't seem to, um, who don't seem to deserve it. Right? I mean, it's easy to love somebody who's a little lovable. One of the ways we were taught to do evangelism when I was in high school in the sort of youth group culture was uh, to go after the key kids. You've ever heard this phrase, the key kids? <laughs> if you really want to reach your campus, young people, for the gospel, you go after, first and foremost, the key kids. All your energy goes into the key kids. And I'll tell you who the key kids are. The key kids are like the quarterback of the football team and the captain of the cheerleading squad and the student body president and so on and so forth. The who's, the VIPs of high school life and culture. Now, those people need the gospel, too. It's not that they don't need the gospel. But the idea was, this is sort of like trickle-down evangelism. If you could reach the key kids, then, then all the you know, loser kids would be like, oh, well, they're, they're Christians. Christianity must be pretty cool, you know? And then, and then I read the gospels. And I'm looking at who Jesus is ministering to. And it doesn't look like he's spending a whole lot of time with the key kids. In fact, his harshest words seem to be for the key kids. But his compassionate heart, his, his sort of face-to-face, down-on-the-knees, sort of tenderest words tend to, tend to be with those who are out on the margins. The, the cast-offs, the oppressed, the sick, the hurting, the broken, the half-breeds. I think Jesus would have been in at my table in the high school cafeteria. The kids who, like me, just wanted to get through the day, hoping nobody really looks at them or talks to them. I just want to, I just want to get in and get out. And I could see all the tables where the key kids sat. And some people aspired to be there. I didn't aspire to be there because I knew I didn't belong there and I wouldn't fit in. And I just wanted to keep my head down, eat my food and get out. I believe that my kind of table is where Jesus would be. Do we have compassion for only the key people? For only the titans of industry? For only the people at the top of their game? For only the successful people, the beautiful people, the well-put-together people? Do you sometimes wonder, like I wonder this, how come Christians can't get any like talented celebrities? Right? 
I mean, I'm not trying to pick, I'm not going to name any names, but I have a theory about this, right? Like, we always, when, when someone comes to Christ in, in Hollywood, it's always somebody who, like, their best movie was, like, 15 years ago, right? It's always someone like that. Why do you think that? This is my theory. Because people at the top of their game don't feel their need like people whose best days were 20 years ago. People on the margins, they hear the gospel and go, that must be for me because I see that Jesus is for losers. Jesus is for the ones who are not key kids. And I've hit the bottom. A royal priesthood has compassion. Compassionate. Secondly, a royal priesthood has conviction has conviction. Some of you are really going to like this one, but I'm not going where you think I'm going with it. We have a conviction about the truth, yes, and a conviction about what works, yes. But I think evangelicalism is largely mixed up on what it is that works. The priests in the scriptures don't offer anything as a sacrifice that will make atonement except what has been prescribed by the Lord. You can't take any old measly lamb in to offer as a sacrifice. You don't get to decide. You don't get to be innovative with what you think should make the atoning sacrifice. A royal priesthood sticks stubbornly to what the Bible says is the only means by which people are changed. There are a million different messages in the world today, and hundreds, if not thousands of them, are coming from the church. Some of them are sourced in the very culture that the church is trying to transform. Too many churches using fleshly means to reach fleshly people. And we wonder why it doesn't work. I think too many of us are tempted to think that the proclamation of the finished work of Christ needs our help. The way that I was trained to preach was sort of like using the Bible as like Bartlett's book of quotations. Just throw some Bible verses in there. It's a a Bible-based sermon. But the Word of God itself is what gives life. I'm not supposed to preach as if the Bible supports my words. I'm supposed to preach as if my words support the Bible. A royal priesthood knows where truth is. We know where our hope is. We know where our wisdom is. It's in God's word. But we have to handle it and preach it as if it is sufficient. As if God's word alone holds the hope of our souls and of the souls of our neighbors. But when we come to the Bible, we have to see in the Bible what we are told works. What is it that transforms people? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And in the same chapter, he talks about how the gospel eclipses the law. So do you know, and this is not the only place he talks about that, but do you know that the law will transform no one? Not a single person. The law is good. Because God made it. It is good and righteous and holy. But it cannot produce what it demands from us. If anything, other than demanding things from us, it reveals that we cannot measure up to it. So how much sense does it make then to expect in our church worship services, in our sermons, as lost people may come in, to give them five things to do? They will not be won to Christ by five things to do. It doesn't work that way. 
The best you can do, even if they could in some ways measure up to that, adopt that, embrace that, the best you can do is create well-behaved pagans. I think for some of us, that's a win. Because we're not hurt over their souls, we just want them to act right. But the message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures is not behave, it's behold. When Jesus was standing at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb, he wasn't trying to discern Lazarus' felt needs. He knew what his felt need was. He needed resurrection. One of my favorite passages in all the scriptures is in Ezekiel, famous passage, the Valley of Dry Bones. You're likely familiar, if, if not with the Bible passage, the, the old song, you know, them bones, them bones, right? <laughs> The Lord delivers Ezekiel into this valley of dry bones. And it says they're, they're, very, tri- they're very dry. I mean, the, just the, I mean, the stench of death is long gone. It's, it's like they're just fossils, just rocks there. Chalky, dusty, dirty, just, just, just dead. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel, I find it very instructive what Ezekiel doesn't say. He doesn't say, of course, of course they can, God. I went to seminary. (laughs) I've read the latest books. I have the latest techniques. I'll give them four steps to coming to life. No, he says what any of us should say when contemplating the, the lostness of our friends and family and our neighbors. He says essentially to God, I have no idea. In fact, what he says is this, Lord, only you know. Only you know. And the Lord does not say to Ezekiel, well, give those bones a pep talk, Ezekiel. Chastise those bones. Give them four C's. (laughs) No, do you know what he says? He says, prophesy over the bones. Say to the bones, hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, only the gospel is power of salvation. Only the gospel is power of salvation. One of my favorite stories from my ministry in Vermont, we had so many people who would bring a spouse to church to get some religion. And then the spouse that was, that was dragged to church didn't just get religion, they got Jesus Christ. And the spouse that brought them, that dragged them to get religion, wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They just wanted religion, and then they were gone. And one of the prime examples of this is my friend Tom, who uh, you know, grew up in the church but was not a believer, but he heard the message of the gospel constantly. And he was a very um, legalistic guy, so he was constantly trying to measure up, to try harder, to do more, to, to just sort of you know, meet all of his religious and spiritual uh, you know, standards, the checklist, all of that kind of thing. And eventually he just got burnt out. He realized this is like a treadmill. I can't, I can't, you know, complete this. And so he just bailed on the whole thing. Well, over the years he got married and he had two little boys and um, they lived, um, you know, just down the road from our church next to this other little church. And his wife, who also was not a believer, was concerned about the, the way the kids were growing up. The two little boys were growing up. They needed some religious instruction. And she would see these families coming out of the, the local church down by their house, and they just looked so happy. It was like a, like a Hallmark car, you know, they're just coming through, like a Coca-Cola commercial or something, you know, just happy, smiling, bounding through the wheat fields or whatever they were doing, I don't know. And she wanted that for her family. 
And so she started begging her husband, like, like, let's go to church. Let's go to church. And he was like, I'm not going to church. You, you will never get me in, in church. And, and so like a good wife, she like nagged him and nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. And, <laughs> and he had always put it off and put it off and put it off until finally it came to a head where she finally broke down and said, what is your problem? I know you went to church as a kid. Don't you want our boys to be in church? Why are you so adamant about not going to church? And he said, you have no idea what they teach there. You have zero clue what they teach in these churches. Do you know actually what this church actually teaches? And Tom said, no sooner had the gospel come out of my mouth than I believed it in my heart. And I was looking at, this is during his baptismal interviews. He's kind of telling me his testimony. And I said, so just to get this straight, you got saved sharing the gospel with your wife. He said, <laughs> he said yeah, that's about, that's the long and short of it. Is the gospel the power of salvation? Oh, my word. Now, when we began to look at the gospel this way, especially in our men's discipleship group as we studied evangelism at our church in Vermont, you, you should see, I mean, you could, you could sense the liberation. That I wasn't on to them about being successful. And I wasn't on to them about certain techniques or programs or rhetorical devices. Trying to pin someone down, get them in a corner, close the deal. You're not responsible for closing the deal. All you're responsible for is making sure people hear the message of the gospel. If you can invite them to pray a prayer with you, that's fantastic. If you can invite them now to respond, that's fantastic. But evangelism is simply making sure people hear the message of the gospel. And you should see the relief in my men when I share this with them. Because to say what the gospel is, is actually rather easy. It's the getting someone to get saved, that's the hard part. But thankfully, it's the gospel that saves people, and not our techniques. So a royal priesthood has a conviction, a conviction that the word of God is sufficient, but further, deeper, that the gospel in the word of God is what actually changes people. We will be stubborn about the gospel. A royal priesthood will offer no other sacrifice, present no other way into the life of God than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will lash ourselves to the mast of the gospel. You can't put any old message on that altar. You cannot even put the law on that altar. You have to put the law is fulfilled on that altar. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, probably my favorite verse in all the scriptures. Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Brothers, especially those of you who are pastors, please in some sense make that your ministry verse. To know nothing among your people, but Christ and him crucified. A royal priesthood has conviction. Thirdly, a royal priesthood is courageous. A royal priesthood is courageous. We will follow that conviction wherever it takes us. I'm sort of, um, uh, I pay attention, it's on my radar to listen to sort of the church growth movement and some of the spokespeople from that movement. And one phrase that they keep saying that really kind of sticks out for me, um, you hear it a lot, it, 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 it has a, a ring of truth in it, but it, it, it really rubs me the wrong way and I think goes the wrong way with the grain of the, you know, against the grain of the scriptures and, and it's this, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. 
Now, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that, that spiritually healthy things grow spiritually. If your church is healthy, your church will be growing spiritually. But to turn, to turn um, into a formula, the idea that if your church is not growing in, in, in people, if it's not you know, accumulating more and more people, that, that automatically you must not be healthy seems to not comport with what I even see in the Bible. I mean, John 6 is a perfect example, right? We talked about it last night. Jesus begins preaching and everybody leaves. Now, if Jesus was being assessed by some of the modern church growth gurus, what would happen? They'd very sweetly take him aside and say, you know what, 5,000 people were here for your bread and your fish, Jesus. We're going to put you on the kitchen crew and we're going to have Peter. He's a little more dynamic than you. We're going to have him be the, be the preacher. Now, it could be, it could be just because your place isn't growing, it could be that there is something wrong. But it's not automatic that if your place isn't growing, it's because there is something wrong. We're going to look a little bit at Isaiah this evening. But Isaiah was called into a mission by God to lose 90% of his people. There are times where the gospel is not in season. Paul instructs Timothy this way. He says, preach the gospel in season and out of season. So this seems to imply that there's going to be times where the gospel is not finding much purchase, where the gospel does not seem to be having much evident fruit. But Paul does not say, hey, find something else to preach. He says, preach the word. Preach the word. No matter what it looks like, no matter what results seem to be occurring, you preach the word. That takes great Courage, because even Christians will come alongside you and have all of their well-meaning, constructive criticism. And of course, as we look at how the culture is going, Christians are seen to be, you've heard this phrase, I'm sure, on the wrong side of history. And a church that is not infatuated, that is not uh, stubborn about the finished work of Christ will begin to acquiesce and accommodate sand off the rough edges of this word. The church that is asleep to the gospel is sort of allergic to embarrassment. It's like the worst thing that could happen to them, that they would look silly or stupid or foolish. But Jesus Christ was willing to look silly and stupid and foolish. Jesus Christ was willing to be questioned, corrected by his own disciples to make sure that the cross was the only thing that he saw. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Will we be so bold a priesthood that we will follow the gospel wherever it takes us? Many Christians will stand up for truth so long as standing up for truth means tweeting something or you know, having a Facebook status that you know, picks on the, the opposing political party or what have you. But when claiming the truth of Christ and his gospel, being sold out for the grace of God and Jesus alone, so many of us shrink back because we don't want the conflict, we don't want the questions, we don't want the division, we don't want to be marginalized, we don't want to be ostracized, we don't want to be excluded. But this polarization is something that Jesus Christ has always done. He even flat out says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He even says, I'm going to pit family members against each other. And sometimes I have seen Jesus will even divide churches. 
And given what is taking place in the world today, do we have any indication that to follow Jesus Christ will become more comfortable? Even the, the Bible Belt, where I grew up and spent most of my ministry years, appears to be heading towards the sort of cultural ruins of post-Christendom. I say good riddance to cultural Christianity. As the outside world is becoming more and more hostile to the things of faith, if God is doing anything in ordaining these cultural shifts to come to pass, it might be this. We're finding out who the real church is. We are separating the men from the boys. Maybe he is sifting out his churches that his true church would rise up. Do you remember the example of John the Baptist, a great example of courageous conviction for us? Willing to go wherever the truth would take him. And he said to Herod, spoke right to the power structure, uh, structure about sexual immorality, something that's not very popular today. He said, it isn't right that you have your brother's wife. And eventually he's executed in prison. Why? Because as the sexualization of the power center increased, later Herod is sort of being uh, seduced by his niece and overcome by lust. He promises her anything. And prompted by her mother, Herod's sister-in-law and mistress, he asks, she asks for John the Baptist's head. And there's something interesting about Herod. We kind of read between the lines. It's like he sort of likes the cut of John's jib. He, he, you know, he sort of has this weird admiration for John. But eventually he complies and has John executed. Well, how far was John willing to go? While things were heating up and getting worse, John was not backing down. He was willing to follow the truth no matter where it took him, even to his death. Because he believed his cousin. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. What we need are bold Christians, bold enough to love people by disappointing them. Willing to lovingly address their eternal danger, even if it upsets their self-righteous sensibilities. What we need are Christians so in worshipful awe of Jesus Christ that they can spot the counterfeit in a second and call it out. And leaders, pastors, so committed to Christ that they will go to their crosses. We need Christian men who are so aligned with God that they take the scorn that is heaped on God. They're willing to be thought foolish. We need men of courage. One of the men that I would sort of hold up as an example to look at in history for my church in Vermont was a man by the name of Lemuel Haynes. He's not a very well-known name. Perhaps some of you have heard that name, Lemuel Haynes. His sort of place in history, he lived in the, in the 1700s, but um, most notable for being the first African-American pastor of an all-white congregation. And it was right there in Rutland, Vermont. And so he was sort of a, a hometown boy for us. Uh, um, Lemuel Haynes lived nearby. He also pastored a church in Granville, New York, which was about 15, 20 minutes away from us. Lemuel Haynes was a, a, a freed slave. He, he fought in the Revolutionary War. He was a devotee of Jonathan Edwards. And he pastored well and he pastored hard in, in, in a place even in the north where we tend to think is, is, is more amenable to the black population than the south would be. And it, it really was not. But this is something that Lemuel Haynes wrote in a little book called The Character and Work of a Spiritual Watchman. This is a guy who knows what it means to be courageous. Lemuel Haynes wrote this. Courage and fortitude must constitute part of the character of a gospel minister. A sentinel, a watchman, a guard who is worthy of that station will not fear the formidable appearance of the enemies. 
nor tremble at their menaces. None of these things will move him, neither will he count his life dear unto him as he defends a cause so very important. He has the spirit of the intrepid Nehemiah, who said, should such a man as I flee? He stands fast in the faith, conducts himself like a man, and is strong. And those words stir me, because I know they're not written from an easy chair. That Lemuel Haynes knew what he was talking about. And even to conjure up that, that weeping, weeping, broken man, Nehemiah, who, when he decides to get to it and build that wall, do you remember, that's such a beautiful image. They're building a wall. They have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. So they can build the wall and fight off the enemy at the same time. That, that's hardcore. We, we, they didn't make a movie about that. compassionate, convicted, courageous. Here's your fourth C. A royal priesthood is compelled. A royal priesthood is compelled. This was the problem with with my evangelism in my adolescence. It wasn't fueled by awe. It wasn't fueled by awe. I was not properly captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, it didn't come natural to share that. C.S. Lewis says, we praise that which we find praiseworthy. It's automatic. It's instinctual. And I'll prove it to you. You find something funny, and what happens? You laugh. You're not thinking to yourself, is that funny? Well, it was well phrased, and, you know diagramming the sentence in your head. Right? Those of you, the few of you who laughed at that, it it struck you as amusing. In the morning, you get up early before the sunrise and you go up onto the mountaintop and you watch and the sun begins to rise. And it's so beautiful. And you just think, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Even if you don't say it, you're thinking it. You're not looking at the sunrise and, and going, well, there's some pink there and there's some orange there and Yes, I think I will decide that this is quite pleasing to my eyes. No, we don't do that. We respond. We respond automatically. Today, it's even easier to make this case today because we share things constantly that aren't important thanks to social media. I don't need to see any more photographs of salads. I don't need to see it. I don't care what you had for lunch. So, of course, we share the things that are important to us. We praise that which we find praiseworthy. So this is where my mind and heart goes. If I'm not sharing Christ, maybe the problem isn't just that I don't care enough for lost people. Maybe it's I don't really care enough for Christ. Maybe I actually don't find him that praiseworthy. The people that that I meet in the office or just in the world, if I get to know them over time, eventually they know that I'm married, they know that I have children, they know the most important things to me. Why wouldn't they know that I follow Jesus Christ if he truly is the most important thing to me? Well, the answer is because perhaps he's not the most important thing to me. Maybe I don't actually worship him. Maybe my life isn't revolving around him because if it was, you couldn't keep me from telling about him. If we're not sharing Christ, the problem probably isn't with our techniques. It probably isn't with our programs, our styles. 
The problem could be that we are not compelled by an experience of the gospel. It hasn't taken root in here. And since Christian worship is giving glory to God and all of life is worship, we're never not worshiping. This means that our mission, our evangelism, is a reflection of worship. It's an act of worship. It's a way that we give glory to Christ. It's a way that we magnify Christ. In his landmark book on world missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says, Mission exists because worship does not. Mission exists because worship does not. In other words, what he's saying is, you're looking around the world and you see places where they do not worship Jesus Christ, and you think, there needs to be worship of Jesus Christ there. And so we're going to go plant worship of Jesus Christ there. We're going to spread the glory of Christ to that place. Gospel-centered mission does not begin with leadership skills. It doesn't begin with leadership strategies. It begins with gospel exaltation. And this sort of gospel-driven, gospel-centered, gospel-wakened worship begins with the gospel. Mission is a supernatural byproduct, an outflow of authentic worship. It's when people become so overwhelmed with the glory of Christ, so fixated on the wondrous story of Christ's sinless life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection, that they have to run and tell. Do you remember what the woman at the well did? He gave her living water. She was just trying to mind her own business, to be alone. And then she was just trying to keep it religious, keep it on the surface. But Christ satisfied her, and she went home and said, Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. You couldn't contain the excitement, the exultation. She had to run and tell. And so we would say with John Piper, yes, mission exists because worship does not. But also, mission exists because worship does. Because it's this, this overflow. There's been a vision of Christ that is so compelling and so propulsive. Leslie Newbegin in his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, says this, Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. I mean, don't you see this? From the early chapters of Acts onwards, a sort of juggernaut of joy taking place. Why would they risk their lives? Why would they go risk being stoned and, and, and flogged and imprisoned and killed? Because they were so motivated, so compelled by the vision of Jesus Christ. They found him all satisfying. They were willing to risk it all. To be that kind of mediator, to be that kind of priest, begins with this compulsion that comes from the gospel. Where it, can't, it cannot be hoarded. I can't keep this to myself. J.R.R. Tolkien, who you probably uh, know most famously for the Lord of the Rings and, and um, The Hobbit, he wrote a, a series of essays on fairy stories. And in, in, in one of the fairy stories, he talks about how the best sort of fairy stories sort of embodied the true story. C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this as well, how Christianity was the myth become true. Like the reason the myths so resonate with us is because the, the true story is sort of embedded in us, but because we're fallen, it's broken. And so we resonate with these little shards of the truth. 
And so Tolkien, he says, uh, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the eucatastrophe of history. Now, eucatastrophe is probably a word that he made up. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not read it anywhere else. But essentially what he's saying is there's a point in a story where the, you know what a catastrophe is. It's where just everything goes to pot, like all hell breaks loose and just everything falls apart. Well, Tolkien says the resurrection is the eucatastrophe. It's the moment where all heaven breaks loose. This, this explosive uh, uh, unleashing of blessings has been led into the world. It's, as if, as if, it's almost as if the veil has been torn. The window to heaven has broken open. And when they rolled that stone away, sunlight streamed in, but a brighter light streamed out. From front to back, the royal priesthood conducts its evangelism, its mission, its mediation as worship. I'll close with this. Consider the famous story of the Moravian missionaries. I know this won't be new to some of you. But this is Paris Reedhead speaking of the Moravian missionaries, the beginning of the Moravian mission. He says, two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And an owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all of that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Moravians heard about it. And they sold themselves to the British planter. And they used the money that they received from their sale, for he paid no more than he would for any slave, to pay their passage out to his island, for he wouldn't even transport them. And as the ship left its pier in the river at Hamburg and was going out into the North Sea, carried with the tide, the Moravians had all come out from Heronhut to see these two lads in their early twenties off, never to return again. For this wasn't a four-year term. They had sold themselves into lifetime slavery. And the families were there weeping, for they knew they would never see these boys again. And they wondered why they were going, and they questioned the wisdom of it. And as the gap widened and the housings had been cast off and were being curled up there on the pier and the young boy saw the widening gap, one lad with his arm linked through the arm of his fellow raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were ever heard from them and they were these. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Now, I notice what they did not say. Nothing about using their gifts, nothing about earning credit with God, nothing about fulfilling their education, but that the lamb that was slain would be magnified. That he would receive his due. That is a cry of worship. That is adoration. That is glorification of God. That is what the royal priesthood is all about. Magnifying the glory of Christ by sharing the message of Christ. A royal priesthood is compassionate, convicted, courageous, and compelled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you you are too wonderful for us. And we, um, like David, 
in our insidest insides just want to dwell in your house forever. There are men in this room who are um, under deep pain right now, Father. Some physical, a lot emotional, psychological, spiritual. They feel distant from you. Um, They believe in you, but they feel lost. They feel abandoned. Some are going through some very difficult things in their families, in their marriages, in their churches. And this weekend is seen as, in some way, a reprieve or an escape or a a time of refreshment or or rest. Father, I pray it would be a time of rescue as well. That your spirit would be here ministering to their hearts so sweetly and tenderly, but powerfully and gloriously, mightily, that not a single man who is at this event this weekend could leave without saying, I am loved by the Father and secured to the Son and empowered by the Spirit. We thank you, Father. We thank you, God, that you are triune, that you haven't held a bit of yourself back from us, that you've given us all that we need to know you, to love you, and to be one to you. So we thank you for this gospel that makes so little of us from the outset, makes so much of you, and yet lets us partake in your divine nature, that lets us share in your glory, that actually exalts us if we are willing to be made low. So I pray you'll build these men up. Fill them so much with your spirit that the joy just comes spilling out. They can't hold it back. Let the mission that we are unleashed to Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, be an explosion of joy. All by the power of your spirit and all in the name of your son and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.